Thanks to Harry's for supporting The Motley Fool. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, so they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, July 16th, financials, and we are covering big bank earnings. The big four, that is Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, and Citigroup have all reported earnings, and we are here to talk through each company and then kind of give some summation uh, to the kickoff of traditional earnings season. So, Matt, it's great to have you back on the show. Let's start by talking about... Well, arguably the loser of the bunch, which folks who've been listening to Industry Focus for a while know that's going to be Wells Fargo. Yeah, and this shouldn't have come as too much of a surprise to anybody. Um, well, first of all, Wells Fargo is not allowed to grow right now. They have a big Federal Reserve penalty kind of hanging over them, and it's indefinite in time frame. that says they're not allowed to get any bigger than how big their assets were at the end of 2017. So while some of the other banks, we saw really impressive loan growth, deposit growth, which we'll get to in a minute, we didn't see any of that with Wells Fargo, understandably so. In fact, they're kind of scaling back a little bit to make sure they don't violate the Federal Reserve's penalty and grow. Um, deposits were down 2% from last year. Loans were down 1%. In And this is kind of really troubling to investors because this is arguably the best time for bank growth in the past few decades. So, um, and just kind of going a little deeper, Wells Fargo historically has been the most profitable of the big four banks. Now they're number three in terms of return on assets and return on equity Uh, efficiency. They are the absolute worst with a 65% efficiency ratio, meaning that they spent 65 cents to generate every dollar worth of revenue. Uh, None of the other three got over 60% in that category. And and let's unpack that a little bit. A, A reminder for folks that the efficiency ratio um, is essentially like you want a lower number. And generally speaking, you want kind of under 60% where possible, but always lower. And so something at 65%, particularly Wells Fargo, which has historically been so good, is a very bad sign. Also, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room here for a minute, tax reform. Tax reform has been a big benefit to the to the big banks, and we'll talk more about that with each of them. But with Wells Fargo, return on equity and return on assets got worse year over year. That is an incredibly bad sign given that tax reform freed up all kinds of extra cash that they would have otherwise had to pay out to the government. Yeah, and to be fair, they had a, about a half a billion dollar charge um, that reduced earnings in the second quarter, but it wasn't nearly enough where it should you know, depress profitability that much. Right. Um, the other thing with Wall Street, there are there's some good news, be, and it's mainly because their price is so low. Um, well, first of all, they they finally saw some uh, interest margin expansion, which they'd kind of been lagging the other three since interest rates started to rise. Everyone else's profit margins started to rise a little bit along with it. And we finally started seeing that with Wells Fargo this quarter. Um, the other thing is because their share prices under, underperformed the banking sector so much, it's actually a really good deal when it comes to buying back shares. And Wells Fargo just got imp- approved from the Federal Reserve for a massive buyback over the next year. Um, they're actually set to buy back about 9% of their outstanding shares at the end of the year. So even if they're not allowed to grow, 9% is actually a pretty decent return for for a big bank to give back to investors in one year. Yeah. Um, not surprisingly, uh, Wells Fargo is continuing to struggle, basically. You know, we knew, <laughs> we have covered fairly exhaustively, I think, most of the kind of brand and operational issues at this massive bank over the past couple of years. 
But um, I think really the key question to investors moving forward, so thinking about not this year or this quarter, but next year, two years from now, 10 years from now, is whether right now represents a trough, at which point stock's a great buy, or whether this represents a new normal uh, because they've kind of cut out some of that really aggressive cross-selling culture because it led to all of that cheating that got them in so much trouble in the first place. Um, and I, for me, that is still very much an open question. That is why I am very firmly on the sidelines with Wells Fargo and intend to remain that way. And that may mean that I miss out personally on a great turnaround story one day. And per, for, for me, I'm okay with that because I think there's just so much execution risk that I, um, I, I, would, I would rather deploy my money elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think there's just uh, a lot of long-term potential in the banking industry elsewhere that doesn't involve the same kind of wait-and-see mentality. So turning on to our second bank, Citigroup, a mixed bag of good and not-so-great news, but certainly better than Wells Fargo. Um, they reported 27% year-over-year earnings growth and 2% revenue growth. Of course, a lot of that earnings growth can be attributed to tax reform, but there are other signs that the business is moving in the right directions. Right. They're not that bad in terms of how Wells Fargo was. Um, they're growing in a lot of the ways we like to see. Uh, specifically, loans and deposits were both up by 4% year over year. Uh, Citigroup's actually running a very efficient operation for the, even compared to some of these other big four banks. Uh, their efficiency ratio was 58%. If you recall, Wells Fargo's was 65 uh, Their interest margins improving nicely. They actually had the best uh, interest margin improvement, I think, of the big four. But on the other hand, they're still kind of not as profitable as they need to be. Uh, Citigroup still has a lot of legacy assets. They have by far the most international exposure of the big four banks. And their profitability is not where it needs to be. Uh, we mentioned return on assets and return on equity briefly with Wells Fargo. You generally want to see over a 10% return on assets and a 1%, or I'm sorry, a 10% return on equity and a 1% return on assets. In Citi's case, they're still not there. They're at 9.2% on return on equity, 0.94% on return on assets. And that's after tax reform. Now, we would have kind of expected tax reform to, you know, catapult these banks to the profitability levels that they needed to be at. And we really haven't seen that with Citi. Um, also, in terms of trading revenue, Wells Fargo does, is purely a commercial bank. They don't really deal with investment banking activities. But Citigroup does. And um, trading has kind of been a big issue for the investment banks over the past couple of years, mainly because market volatility has been so low, trading revenues have been bad. Market volatility has picked up in 2018, so you would expect trading revenue to pick up along with it. And for Citigroup, it was just a big disappointment on trading revenue, whereas the, uh, some of the other banks involved in investment banking that we know about so far have done really well. Citigroup's trading revenue missed terribly, in, especially in terms of equities. Yeah. So. Well, like I said, <laughs> kind of a mixed bag. But one of the interesting things for me is is this idea of these industry benchmarks, right? So the industry benchmarks assumed, amongst other things, a tax format um, that was just fundamentally different from the way things work now. The fact is that if in the past we've expected ROEs of 10% or ROEs of 1%, you know, long term, we would expect those benchmarks to move up a little bit if the current, you know, bank and tax reform uh, takes hold and remains in place. And so for Citi to not even be achieving kind of the old benchmark before all these additional things came in is really just not great news. Um, although I, I will say, I mean, an efficiency ratio of 58% is a welcome change. I mean, Citigroup historically has been 
um, cheap and usually for kind of a reason, uh, which is that they've really struggled to kind of get those returns, kind of get that efficiency ratio that the other big four banks usually kind of had a little bit better locked down. So it's good to see that efficiency at least is closer to where it needs to be, um, even if ROE and ROA are still uh, pretty far off. Yeah, and just to kind of piggyback on that, Michael mentioned how Citigroup's generally cheap. They are by far, by far, by far the cheapest bank in terms of price to earnings, price to book, price to tangible book, and by a big margin. So while they're kind of not as profitable as we'd like them to be, you get what you pay for. You're getting a really good, if you think Citigroup's going to eventually turn the ship around and kind of be as profitable as the rest of the banks, you're getting a really good long-term bargain at the current levels. Right. But of course, therein lies the fundamental question. So we'll turn to our next two banks in just a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision. So they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. Get a $13 value trial, that set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. So... You've all heard me talk about how great the lathering shave gel is, when, by the way, in case you haven't, it smells amazing. Strongly recommend. Um, but I figured I'd talk a little bit about the actual razor and, and the handle today. So you know how if you have one of those really nice quality pens, you know, it's like a $20 or $30 pen, it's it's weighted so it balances really well in your hand? Well, their deal, their, their razor has kind of a similar feel to it. Um, and that's something that sort of just feels very good as you're kind of you know, moving it around to get that close shave. And I will say as well, um, it was a good, close, smooth shave uh, when I tried out their razor. So um, it's 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 a great product. Um, and additionally, hey, <laughs> this is financials. We talk about financial things. Uh, that means we're always looking for a bargain, right? Um, by selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's can offer their blades at a much lower price than the leading brand, just $2 per blade compared to $4 or more. And there's a quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let Harry's know within 30 days, and they'll give you a full refund. Industry Focus listeners can redeem their trial set at harrys.com fool. So make sure you go to harrys.com fool to redeem your offer and let them know we sent you to help support the show. Thanks. All right, let's turn to bank number three of the big big four, J.P. Morgan, which had, frankly, pretty pretty good numbers, generally speaking. A 26% year-over-year earnings growth, again, in large part due to tax reform. Uh, if I sound like a broken record, it's going to probably happen again with Bank of America. <laughs> and uh, 6% <laughs> revenue growth year-over-year. And um, frankly, I mean, ROE, 14%, uh, which is, again, very favorable compared to Citigroup's you know, nine and some change, and a 56% efficiency ratio. So really uh, good to see those numbers kind of all trending in the right direction. Yeah, J.P. Morgan had a bunch of kind of best best in breed statistics in their earnings report, just to kind of name a few. I mentioned trading revenue, how it was such a disappointment with Citigroup. Well, it was kind of the opposite for J.P. Morgan. Their trading revenue jumped by about 13%, where they were expecting it to be flat year over year. So this was a big surprise, as well as just being a great achievement. And it was spread out pretty evenly among uh, fixed income trading and equities trading. So in kind of both areas the markets were looking at in trading, they, they did very, very well. Um, they actually wound up with the number one market share in global investment banking fees, which considering some of who they're up against is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, and, 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 I'll, and I'll note as well, I mean, so one of the things that I tend to look at within any sector is when, you know, when you have two competitors that have 
comparable business uh, areas. So for example, Citigroup trading, JP Morgan trading, and one of them performs really well and one of them performs really badly. That tells you it's not just a secular trend, right? It's actually an issue of um, how they're executing. And so this is a really, really good sign for JP Morgan and not a great sign for Citigroup that in the same environment, Citigroup struggled, JP Morgan prospered. That tells you a lot about the quality of management and what they're doing with that particular part of their business. Yeah, the only reason I wouldn't call JP Morgan the best of the best in terms of bank earnings so far is because they had just a couple of negative items. First, um, and not this is not too significant, they had a, a $330 million charge related to their credit card business. Um, if you're not following the credit card markets, JP Morgan Chase is kind of involved in a big rewards battle with every other credit card issuer where they're seeing who can offer users the most value or most, you know, big sign up bonus, big rewards points. Um, so related to their credit cards rewards, their customers are actually taking rewards even more than they thought they would. So there was a pretty big charge that was unexpected. Uh, more significantly, JP Morgan's interest margin actually contracted from the first quarter. And you would expect the opposite in a rising rate environment. Um, generally, banks have a good portion of their deposits are non-interest bearing. Uh, the rest tend to, their interest rates paid on deposits tend to rise slower than market interest rates are going up. So you tend to see margin expansion in rising rate environments. And you, at least this quarter in JP Morgan's case, we're really not seeing that. Yeah. And that is a troubling sign. I mean, to be fair, it was essentially flat. I and mean, we're talking a 0.02 percentage point decline in interest margin, right? But fact of the matter is, as the Fed keeps increasing rates, the whole reason banks have been on a run really is is sort of, you know, threefold, right? Deregulation, uh, tax reform, and an expectation that as the Fed raises rates, banking will get more profitable. And the fact that it isn't in this case for JP Morgan, specifically regarding interest rates, is a concern and uh, also is a way in which it kind of stands out from the other banks, which saw improved net interest margins. Again, not substantially, but they did see improvement, which again is to me... Uh, create some questions. Now, again, one quarter or another doesn't necessarily tell us a lot. Things happen uh, with just the timing of, of various ways of doing things. And so um, I think that's really going to be a question for JP Morgan kind of over the next couple of quarters. But something that I will be keeping a very, very close eye on because I want to make sure that they're executing well in a rising rate environment, because frankly, that's when they should be executing well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, JP Morgan's pretty much firing on all cylinders these days. There's really, like I said, we're being kind of nitpicky with the interest margin and credit card charge stuff. There's really not that much going wrong with J.P. Morgan Chase at all right now. Yeah, overall, a a strong earnings uh, uh, earnings showing. Just some questions that we need to consider, sort of the next time that they report earnings. We want to make sure that those trends are reversing themselves. And finally, Bank of America. And wow, forty three percent year over year growth in earnings, three percent revenue growth. Um, Merrill Edge brokerage assets grow 20% year over year, um, trading revenue up 7%. I mean, just all across the board, a very good quarter for Bank of America. Yeah, I would call Bank of America the clear winner of earnings season so far. And to be in, in complete disclosure, I'm a shareholder. But 
Um, I followed, I've been following Bank of America for a long time, and since the financial crisis, their turnaround has just been phenomenal. I mean, just looking at some of these numbers, they aced the trading revenue. Um, trading revenue is up 7%. Not quite as great as JP Morgan, but it's in, in the direction we wanted to see. It was exactly what we thought it would be. Uh, return on equity, return on assets are both well over those 10%, 1% benchmarks, which if you followed Bank of America in the few years after the financial crisis, that would have seemed crazy to predict. So Bank of America is really doing well. They've, they've really emphasized expense reduction, especially through technology. Uh, Bank of America has, is the technology, I think, that in my opinion, the technological leader of the big four in terms of just how much they've invested successfully in building out their mobile platforms, you know, their um, online platforms, how many customers can, the, fun the functionality of customers being able to make appointments with bankers through their phones or computers. Um, they're really almost eliminating the need to go to a branch at this point. And that's really resulted in high, efficient, high efficiency for them. Uh, their efficiency ratio is 59% this year or this quarter. That's the best we've seen from Bank of America in about a decade. So this was a very, very good quarter. And more important than just this quarter, it's really a continued trend in the right direction that we're seeing that's most promising. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll note here, you know, a 10.8% uh, ROE and a, about a 1.2% ROA, those are solid numbers. But for me, it's really kind of within that historical context that this is much better numbers than they've been reporting in the past is a very good sign that the expense discipline and really the, the thoughtful work that Bank of America has done in terms of retooling and trying to kind of get smarter and better and leaner and more profitable, at least so far, appears to be paying off. Of course, the big question will be, um, just what does their credit quality look like when the cycle turns? But for that, let's step back to general broad summary. Um, you know, when when thinking about this quarter so far, and again, just got the big four so far, um, but we're definitely seeing brokerage and wealth management assets increasing. Generally speaking, there are some standouts. Uh, Wells Fargo's uh, wealth management revenue is down, actually. But those assets are increasing largely due to inflows, and stock returns, right? It's been a great market and a lot of people are getting more excited about investing. Of course, the question will be on the flip side, when the stock market hits the skids, which inevitably it will at some point, um, then what happens for those for those business units and just how sticky are those relationships? And that'll be an open question. Yeah, definitely, especially in um, some of these cases of um, building up their platforms for just basic retail investors like Merrill Edge. Mm -hmm. um, these are those are generally the first to pull their money out when things go bad. So we'll see how, like like Michael said, how sticky that is when things take a turn the other direction. Uh, the number you want to keep an eye on is inflows or outflows in a, in a bad case. Um, don't pay too much attention to say if you hear um, such and such bank wrote grew their assets under management by twenty billion dollars. You want to pay attention to whether there were net inflows or net outflows in that money. That tells you kind of excludes market performance and just tells you how many people were putting money in that could help the bank on more of a long-term sustainable basis. Yeah. And to step back to regulatory environment for a moment, uh, tax reform boosted earnings, boosted uh, return on equity and return on assets pretty much across the board um, with Wells Fargo being kind of the, the standout that really struggled <laughs> versus everybody else. Um, so not surprisingly, we see an environment that's much more positive for banks than it was, say, a year ago. And relatedly, um, interest margin generally expanding, 
because the Fed is generally raising rates. And so um, this is definitely a time in the sun for for the big banks. You know, generally speaking, they should be having a pretty good um, few quarters and hopefully years, um, assuming that the economic recovery continues to hold. Yeah, that's kind of what I was talking about with Wells Fargo. This penalty where they're not allowed to grow couldn't have possibly come at a worse time. Yeah. Um, if they had been not allowed to grow in like, you know, say 2009, it wouldn't, that, it really wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But this is a great growth environment for banks. And to kind of take away that growth engine is really kind of disheartening as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, expense management. I mean, you know, I've harped on this a few times, this idea of, you know, the shift toward digital, trying to find ways to run leaner and leaner operations, reducing branch count. Um, but, you know, kind of just to give you a sense of things, 76% um, of Bank of America's deposits are now digital, mobile and ATM. That's that's how they get those deposits versus just 24% at the actual bank at this point. And that's about a 10 percentage point shift in that direction in about a year. Um, so really, we, we can expect that trend, which is visible across kind of all the big banks and, well, I assume probably all, all of banking, to intensify, particularly as things like Capital One Cafes really highlight um, people's um, ability to do more and more of their banking online, which is more convenient for them, of course. They don't have to leave the house and also more profitable for the banks because then they don't have to have as many expensive um, banking centers. Um, and, and so that can help them kind of uh, manage expenses. And, you know, uh, Capital One cafes are, are really designed to help facilitate that and educate people about that. And so that's a really interesting opportunity to, um, again, just kind of help brand that as the big banks try to kind of push into a more digital world and really control those expenses. And Michael and I kind of disagree on how quickly this is going to happen, but it's a clear <laughs> trend. Yes. Um, banks don't, the, here's kind of the takeaway. Banks don't want to run branches. Branches are expensive. You have to not, you don't, you not only have to build the building or rent a building, you have to build out the inside, you have to pay for staff, you have to pay benefits to those staff, you have to buy all the equipment, furniture. Every time someone makes a deposit in person, you have to hand them a receipt, they put it in an envelope, those all cost money. Mobile deposits cost roughly one-tenth of what an in-person deposit does, and the same goes for an ATM deposit. So it's a huge cost difference for banks to be able to shift their business away from physical branches. Even ATMs, like I said, are infinitely cheaper than, than having an actual branch. So this is definitely a trend. I think it'll take a long time, probably the rest of my lifetime, before bank branches kind of become ant really antiquated but it's definitely heading in that direction for sure um whereas my guess would be more like 15 to 20 years but we will see um that that'll certainly be something that i think matt and i'll keep in touch on uh just to, just to, just to kind of get a feel for how things go um but yeah the 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 question with all of this that that you know the banks are generally firing all cylinders will be what happens when the cycle turns when the market declines wealth management assets probably will too just because the amount of money that they have, uh, you know, if they if they have a fund that's worth X and then you take 20% off the value of that fund because the stock market declines by 20%, well, then assets under management will decline by 20%. And, of course, there are inflows and outflows to also consider. Um, if there's a recession, credit quality will fall off, too. People tend to pay their debts when the economy is doing well and, and well, unemployment's low. Um, it's a different ballgame uh, if... What has been really a, a a a long and substantial economic recovery and a long and substantial bull market 
really turn. And so that's really where we're going to get the sense of who really made the smart loans and who really trimmed the right expenses is when things get tougher. Um, but in the meantime, banks probably enjoy their time in the sun and we will be right there with them. Folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan Boyd. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening. Fool on.